Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, the Other People Podcast is a listener-supported show. All episodes are free, more than 500 episodes and counting, all entirely free. Listen on iTunes, listen on Stitcher, iHeartRadio, listen on the internet, listen via the free Other People app. It's all free. So I count on the support of listeners to keep the thing going. If you would like to support this program, you can do so at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Your support makes a difference. Makes a difference. Want to make a difference? Patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Okay. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jake, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just hey, everybody. How's it going? Welcome to the Other People right. Podcast. I'm right. Brad Listy. I'm standing here in Los Angeles, California. And uh, you did hear me correctly. I am standing up. I have a new stand-up desk in my office. And uh, I feel like I should let you know that. I feel like as a listener, you have a right to know my posture. So I think it's, I don't know, I feel better standing up. I think better on my feet. I feel like it's healthier. I don't like sitting down all day. So I'm at a stand-up desk. I have Debbie Graber on the program today. Very, very pleased to have her here. She has a new book out from Unnamed Press. It is called Kevin Kramer Starts on Monday. Kevin Kramer Starts on Monday. Steve Carell, the uh, famous comedian, actor, award-winning actor, uh, he blurbed the book. He says, quote, Kevin Kramer starts on Monday, made me laugh out loud for the first time in 15 years. It's quite an accomplishment. So uh, Debbie Graber and I in conversation momentarily. I do want to read some mail quickly before we get started. I've heard from a lot of listeners over the past week in response to uh, the last episode, the monologue to the last episode in particular, in which I uh, talked about the company that I was working for and its recent dissolution and the fact that I'm now looking for a new gig and trying to make uh, decisions and wanting to imbue those decisions with some real wisdom and trying to figure out who I am, like what I'm most interested in, where I would be the best fit, how I can be most effective in this world and make a positive difference and all that existential stuff that's tied to uh, occupation, human occupation. 
A listener named Sam writes, Dear Brad, I like the sound of your writer's retreat idea. Of course, you would have to brand it as, quote, Brad Listy's Yado, a new age retreat for the mindful writer or some shit like that. But it may have potential. Signed, Sam. <laughs> uh, Sam, I'm going to talk more about this once I read the other letters. But uh, Sam, I will tell you that if I do ever uh, make this idea happen if it comes to fruition it will definitely be called Brad Lesti's Yato a listener named Wes writes Brad I really liked your idea of starting some kind of writer's workshop in the country somewhere it's a really good idea and I know in the past you have been reluctant to monetize the podcast but there's no reason you can't explore that more do more of them sell apparel get sponsors start a uh, subscription service why not? Signed, Wes. And then finally, a listener named Thomas writes, Hi, Brad. A while ago, I read Brian Cranston's autobiography, A Life in Parts. As a young man, he aspired to be an actor, but was also seriously considering a career in law enforcement. In order to make up his mind, Cranston went on a two-year cross-country motorcycle trip with his brother. They got lost a bunch of times, slept outside, met some shady characters, and got into a few sticky situations. Cranston brought along a book of plays, and reading this book convinced him to pursue acting full-time. So here's my suggestion for you. Ride a motorcycle across America with Brian Cranston's younger brother. I believe his name is Kyle. Cheers, Thomas. So, uh, thanks to everybody for writing. If I didn't get to your letter, I apologize. Uh, as for the writer's retreat, like to give you context in case you're not aware or you didn't listen to the episode uh, a week ago, the, the idea occurred to me as I was sitting here and I was trying to think uh, outside the box. I was trying to think creatively about, you know, how I could apply whatever weird combination of, uh, you know, skills and abilities I have into something meaningful and useful. And I was also trying to think uh, somewhat, uh, you know, uh, what's the word? Idealistically. Your mind drifts towards a, you know, utopian thoughts sometimes. And I was thinking like, wow, there would be this great writer's retreat out in the middle of nowhere. I'm picturing like a mountain lake at like moderately high altitude in a place that gets lots of sunshine. And uh, there would be like seven to 10 cabins around the lake. And then there would be like a main house with a kitchen and a, a, like a socializing area, like possibly some ping pong. shuffleboard <laughs> and then I would have a house somewhere like my family would live somewhere like nearby I don't know where like in the woods I don't know but uh, Brad Listy's Yado is an excellent uh, idea for a name as for making it a new age retreat for the mindful writer that part I'm uh, you know I'm suspicious of I feel like that could easily spiral into something weird and culty and dangerous it could get dark very quickly and I certainly have no authority to be doing such a thing. Though, when I do uh, sit around and ponder this sort of idea from time to time, uh, I, will, I, I have to admit that I have in, in the past thought to myself, like, wouldn't it be interesting to have this retreat, uh, to have this facility, to have writers and residents show up, and uh, to then have, uh, you know, like some sort of like on-site monk or nun, some sort of holy person. We ship them in. Like, perhaps we have them come in from Nepal or India, or uh, some other kind of like Buddhist monastery, either in state in the United States or Canada or whatever it is, you, you basically make an arrangement to have them come in, 
perhaps they uh they could herd some goats higher up on the mountain they would have a smaller cabin higher up on the mountain it would be barely visible from the lake where the riders are in residence and every once in a while the uh, holy person would descend from the mountain and visit with the riders it's just an idea so uh and for wes uh who wrote about monetizing the podcast I have, uh, I've done that, you know, like I've tried, I did a subscription service for a while, but I found that I, I was uncomfortable with it because, you know, I know that as a, a fan of podcasts, like paywalls annoy the shit out of me. It bums me out. It's just a pain in the butt, you know, especially if you're new to a show and you're scrolling through the archives and you, you're picking and choosing which shows you want to listen to. Some of them are deeper into the archives. And, I, you know, I also felt like as a, you know, in terms of the writers who have guessed it on this show, if you're an author and you've been on this show and you felt the interview went well and you like it as a representation or an introduction to you and your work, it sucks to have your episode go behind a paywall. You can't really share it or make use of it after the fact. So I thought that it was doing a disservice to the writers by having this paywall. So what I did was I made the entire archive free and asked uh, listeners to support the show. As for sponsors, you know, it's like part of it is just laziness. I got to admit, like reaching out to sponsors, trying to do that. Like I have to book the show, host the show, do the interviews, produce the show, post the show. Like there's a lot of work that goes into doing this and I'm doing all the legwork. So to add to that, ad sales and, uh, you know, apparel design and then integrating that into my website, like I just haven't been able to, to get it done. So maybe it's not laziness as much as it is a function of time. As for uh, taking a motorcycle trip across the country with Brian Cranston's younger brother, I would do that, though I have no idea how to ride a motorcycle, and I have to admit that I'm a little bit scared of motorcycles. I feel like there's very little margin for error, which might sound funny because I am uh, totally willing to ride a bicycle all over Los Angeles. In fact, I was driving around the city this, you know, this past weekend thinking to myself that I'm actually, I feel much safer on a bike in this city than I do uh, in a car. Maybe that's just me. So thanks to everybody for writing. If I didn't get to your email, please accept my apologies. I will keep you all posted as this process unfolds. And I imagine it will be a process. It's just the way it is. It's the nature of the thing. These, you know, these kinds of arrangements rarely, uh, you know, they, they rarely turn around quickly. You have to go through it. You have to take the ride. I have to have a lot of conversations with friends and family. I've got to read some stuff, got to listen to some stuff, got to take some meetings, <laughs> go on a vision quest. But it'll sort itself out. I'll keep you posted. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. 
Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Debbie Graber. Her new book is called Kevin Kramer Starts on Monday. It's available now from Unnamed Press. Here she is, folks. This is Debbie Graber. So I am from Chicago originally, and right. I, um, I took improv classes at Second City. And Steve Carell was one of my teachers. No he was kidding. one of my instructors, yes. Back in the day. Back in the day, yes, back in the day. And so Did you know that he was gonna be a huge success? You know, back this in the is day? this is like a whole this is like a whole thing because when I was I ended up I was taking classes at Second City and then I ended up working there for five years in an administrative capacity. No, I was not, you know. I did not make it onto the main stage or any of the other stages. I worked there in an, um, in an administra- administrative capacity. So when I was there, it was like the, the heyday, the, the second heyday of Second City, where it was Steve Carell, Stephen Colbert, and Amy Sedaris, and Tina Fey, and all these people. So it's like kind of a, like an in- interior joke that it's like, you know, all of these people made it, you know, and then I was, <laughs> and here I am. But uh, did, you, did you know all those people? Yeah, uh-huh, yeah, So sure. you, were, you were there, and you yes, saw them? Yes, Which one out of the group were you like, that's the person who's got their gift? You know, um, Steve. Steve Carell, definitely, you were kind of like, okay, you know, he's got like star quality, but really all of them did. I mean, Stephen Colbert, I remember he was hysterical. I mean, these are really, really good improvisers. Um, you know, Adam McKay was there. He's, you know, a writer, right. producer now, director, Oscar nominated, Oscar director. nominated, all these people. Were they all nice? Was they, they, they couldn't all have been nice. Some of them I, had to have been assholes. You know, honestly, and I'm not just saying this for, you know, podcast purposes, right. but I, they really were nice. That, well, but then again, like, I think maybe people sometimes are turned into not such nice people by success. Right. Sometimes that can happen. Oh, definitely. But back in the day, they were just on the rise. They were just like regular, you know, funny people, funny people. Uh-huh. They were just, you know, regular, regular people. So, um, so I knew Steve from that time. And actually Steve's wife, Nancy, who's also a very funny actress writer in her own right, Nancy Walls, she and I were roommates. We were roommates. So we've kept up over the years. Um, so, you know, and, and Steve is a very, he's like a very kind, like quiet, sort of shy, retiring person. So it's not like you can't, cause like you can't run like, cause when he's performing, especially comedically in certain roles, you're sort of turned up. And when you're on stage right. or you're doing improv or yes. whatever, I, I don't understand. But like, let me put it to you this way. I, it makes perfect sense to me that somebody who's really good at that and can do that would be shy and retiring off stage. Yes. What doesn't make sense to me are the people who are like always on. <laughs> yeah, there are those people and those are the insufferable people that you just want to get away from. I don't understand how you could possibly I... like, like what is happening on an energy level, you know, in those people that can allow them to sustain that. It seems exhausting just to be around. I, I think it, I'm sure it is. And I think, I mean, you know, writers like that too. You know, there are writers who are just, you know, they live to have a captive audience. They're just story after this, after that. And it's like, oh my God you know, shut up. Yeah, please. Please. I don't need another story. Do you, I don't, I don't, I don't want another story. Stop talking. So, um, so Steve and Na- so Nancy and I have really kept up. And so Steve was nice enough to read the book and he, you know, I, 
obviously I was like, no pressure. If you, if you think it's terrible, you know, please, by all means, don't, by all means, don't blurb it. But, uh, but he liked it. So, so that's how I got it. Cool. I'm always curious. I think I had, uh, I think I had Seth Greenland on. He had like a Larry David blurb. Oh, wow. And I, like, I'm just like, how do you get a Larry David blurb? <laughs> it doesn't seem like the easiest blurb in the world to get. Right, It's usually, right. he had some connection. So you're from Illinois. Yes, we, I, I think am. we were talking about that before we, we came on. Yes. You're from suburban Chicago? I am. That is correct. That is correct. Glenview, Illinois. Is that like, is that John Hughes territory? It is. It's right squarely in John Hughes territory. So yes. like those neighborhoods, those schools and stuff yes. like you grew up in, that, yes. that's your milieu. Yes, it is. Um. In fact, they shot uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, not at my high school, but at like our sister high school. And some of, I had some friends at that high school and they were extras. So, you know, if you watch Ferris Bueller, you might, you know, you see them in the hallways or whatever they were doing. Uh, But yes, it is, it is squarely John Hughes territory. Absolutely. I was thinking about this the other day because I, uh. I actually had Molly Ringwald on this show because she's a novelist, yes, you know, and yes. I've had her husband on. Right, here. right. So, I, but I was talking to Molly about John Hughes, which is, you know, my generation, those movies were a big deal. Yeah. Sort of like the mythology of youth and all this kind of stuff. And but then I was also thinking recently, I was like, you know, some like, especially 16 Candles, some of the humor does not age well at no. all. Like super racist. Oh God. Yeah. And you're just like, Oh wow. Like, like, <laughs> I just Boy. like, as I guess I was a kid, but you know, you got to give yourself some leeway, but it's like, wow, I kind of missed that. And like for a lot of years it was like, I love 16 candles, but it's like, <laughs> right. you know, that's really ugly. Yeah. Like, oh, the definitely. long duck dong stuff is not, like, oh, that's, no. that's uh, and the gong. That's yeah. just bad. It's, it's not bad even, taste. it's not even like subtle. You know what I'm saying? It's right. just like in your face. Like, well, I guess this is okay. This is going to make it into mainstream culture. It, and it did. I mean, and then, and then like, I, kind of feel bad about myself that you know for so long i thought that was just such a great movie and then you revisit it and you're like this is sort of awful yeah. in certain ways and i mean I'm, some of it's still really funny but i was trying to th- i was trying to think of why like what what would have been like a part of his sensibility that would have allowed for that and i was thinking i guess he's a baby boomer he was a baby boomer yes i'm yeah and yeah. like baby boomer like post-world war ii like there was like the, you know, some sort of inherent, uh, like, antipathy towards like Japan. Uh, and, p- entirely possible. Is that what it was? You know. I, or he was just an asshole. I don't know. I uh, mean, sorry, John Hughes. I yeah. mean, I know you're no longer with us, but I, you know, I have no idea, but I do think, you know, as time goes on and I've thought about this a lot lately, you just, things that really were okay in the 80s and the 90s and, and the aughts. They're not okay anymore. And I mean, that's a good thing, but it's like you really, it hasn't taken that much time for things to sort of turn around, you know, and it's it's kind of amazing. Um, and it's it's sort of like you start to revisit things that you that you really enjoyed or that you thought were great. And then you think, wait, you know, that's really... That's not so great. After yeah, it's all. interesting. I'm thinking about like, I like what just flashed through my mind as you were saying that, like the turnaround and the change. Like, I gotta say, I think maybe social media has something oh, to do yeah. with, like, in a positive way. Yes, because I'm I'm always the first to like denigrate social media right. and to like bemoan like the way that it's affected my <laughs> life. But right, you know, when it comes to changing the conversation around issues related to race, gender, um. LGBT, sure. like any kind of cultural equality issue. Right. I think maybe those those platforms give voice and connectivity to people and communities who might not otherwise have the ability to like you know speak out loudly. Yes, definitely. Because I think 
you know, and this just reminds me, like when I was still like a young person in Chicago, I I just lived for like the art section in the Chicago Tribune or 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 the New York Times, like, oh my God, the New York Times. And I just thought, you know, all the stuff they were talking about and all the plays and, you know, that was like my frame of reference of like the good stuff. And I think now looking back, I'm like, why was that? You know, just because some editors decided that was the good stuff doesn't mean that that is the good stuff. That's right. And it's so, there's so much more to choose from now from so many other uh, places and people and communities. And I think that's, you know, that's just great. As the the host of an obscure literary podcast (laughs) in Los Angeles, I'm glad to hear you say that, Debbie. (laughs) Makes you feel good, doesn't it? Yeah. People have no idea what a goldmine this show is. (laughs) Only the editors of the New York Times could get wise. I know, right? No, watch this. Someone's going to call you from the New York. Oh my God, the New York Times called me. So uh, okay, so growing up in like I, like I'm picturing uh, like an, kind of an all American folksy Midwestern upbringing in a neighborhood with like wide green lawns and uh, lots of white people. Yes, yes, there are definitely a lot of definitely a lot of white people. So, but like, was it what kind of childhood was it? Um, you know, it was uh, it was good. It was it was fine. It was very. I mean, I hate to bring John Hughes in into, into it again, but it's like the Breakfast Club. Okay, that was like one of my all times all time favorites for years, years and years. Because that's really, in a way, what it was like, you know. And I, I know it sounds kind of like trite and sort of like on the verge of just totally stupid now, but it really was like that when I was in school, you know, like there were the, there were the different kinds of kids and there were the jocks and there were the popular girls and there were the nerds, you know, people, what were you? Uh, I was kind of like, I was kind of like a drama nerd a little bit or like a choir. I was in choir. Did you have crossover appeal? Um, no, <laughs> definitely not. No. You know, like, uh, cause, like as, as you were saying that, I, as you were saying that, I was anticipating that you were going to say like, I was sort of a nerd, but I was friends with everyone because I've had that conversation with people on this show. And, right. and most of the time, that's what people say. I, I think don't, people, people like to imagine themselves no. as having crossover. I'm relieved I, to hear you say, like, no, I was I, basically entrenched in my little spot. I was. I mean, people didn't really, there wasn't a lot of like moving between the cast system, you know? So I didn't really have crossover appeal. You're no. like, I was an untouchable. Like, I, I, yeah, I wasn't that bad. <laughs> I wasn't as bad as some other people, but I was definitely like in the middle. You know, there was like a large middle area. Um, I feel like drama... If I'm like recalling my own high school drama department, like it was one of the more insular cliques. Oh yeah, like people who are into drama are into drama. They hung out together. Right. There were a lot sang. of back rubs. Yeah, lots of back rubs and like singing. Yeah, yeah. what is it with the back rubs? <laughs> That's so true. Something just gross. Something just horny about you know teens who can't get it any other way. And <laughs> I don't know. I yeah. don't know, but my buddy's brother was in drama, and I didn't hang with him socially a lot because he was older. But he was also in the drama department, and uh-huh. so that would, like he, they were sort of off on their own little island, right? But I remember distinctly being at a party where they were there, and then it was me and my buddy, and our friends were there, 
And like the drama kids were like sitting around and like singing and like looking at each other in the eye while singing. Yeah. And there were back rubs. <laughs> oh, no. and, and like we were all just like, what do we do with this? Like, yeah. I don't know how to infiltrate this. Is there beer here? Yeah. <laughs> Is there some kind of substance I could abuse to make this Pretty much, happier, yeah. Yeah. a happier place? Exactly. Can I just like, you know, like lower my social inhibitions? <laughs> figure out a way to talk to somebody? Right, right. Yeah. I mean, I was also on the speech team. Did you guys have a speech team? We did. We had like debate or something. Yes. We had the debate team. Actually, my my high school has a my my high school and our sister high school have a very like nationally ranked debate team. My sister, my older sister, was on the debate team. What public school? Mm-hmm. Okay, yes. so these yes. are like these like is it one of these like public schools in a nice suburb outside of Chicago that like wins a lot of like championships? Yeah, um, it depends what the, like they would always win the debate championship. Okay, but sports. I mean they. They were okay. They weren't like the best, but they were okay. But it was, you know, that's why people moved into those neighborhoods because the tax, I mean, the taxes were high. This is the part of the program where we start talking about taxes. Yes. We're going to spend the next half hour on tax policy. I think that's going to be really interesting. (laughs) Um, You know, the taxes are really high because it all goes to the public schools. Right. Unlike, you know, so many other places where none of it goes to the public schools. Like LA. Yeah. Is that what it is? Like, why why do LA public schools suck so bad? They don't get, uh, you know, I I am the last person to even know very much about public schools, but I, I do think there is something about taxes not going to the school districts i don't know because i'm I'm like a person who can be persuaded that you can't solve every problem just by throwing money at it right there's got to be there's got to be more to it than just like you cut a check but (laughs) do this do with this what you will all the billions of dollars that we spend on weapons all the billions of dollars that we give Uh, away to corporations uh, and tech what if we just like we're just like you know what we're gonna pay teachers like three hundred fifty thousand dollars a year? I think that would be a great idea. I mean, it couldn't hurt. As long as at this you, point, you know, like make the market competitive, and everyone would want to be a teacher. Right? I'd be out there seriously. You know, part of the reason I don't—I mean, this sounds terrible. But part of the reason I don't want to teach and like give back to my community is like right. it's like a poverty wage. Right. Well, I think that that is a huge problem. Yeah. I mean, and I always—I have said many times lately that I think you know what's going on currently in our political system is just a failure of public school uh public schools you know failure to teach people how to think critically for themselves um so that's where you know that's where we lived it was you know you could you could go to a great school and it was a public school you didn't have to go to a private school and yeah i mean it was a great education i had a lot of great teachers um it was just a we- you know it was just a weird time I think I don't know if you can you know if this is your experience but it was just like a very I think you know at that time it was very much like oh all the people I knew as I as I got older and like went to college you know people were really interested in business like oh I'm in I'm going to B school I'm going to be a lawyer <laughs> I'm going to business school it was either literally like once you graduated from college it was okay get some corporate job what were, were the politics of glenview conservative um they were you know they were relatively conservative i mean it's illinois so it was a pretty democrat you know it's a democratic state it's a chicago it's a democratic city in chicago yes true but even those areas i mean in illinois it seems to me and people from illinois may disagree but the really conservative parts of illinois are like the the middle you know the sort of like rural agricultural Downstate. yes exactly like that seems to be the more conservative i mean chicago chicago land i think is still I even more so now, probably um, pretty, dem- you know, they're pretty liberal. But back then it was, 
you know, like I remember my, like we were one of my parents were like the few people on the block who voted for Jimmy Carter, you know? And I was like, that's just, that's weird. Yeah. Um, I feel like he's underrated. Oh my God. Yeah. I would pay to have, can we pay to get Jimmy Carter back? (laughs) He's such a nice, thoughtful, (laughs) sane fellow. Never, never dropped a bomb on anyone. Really? Always thought, was very thoughtful about, you know, the things he was doing really like struggled. Put like solar panels on the roof of the White House in like 1979 or something. I mean, come on. Can we get him to run again? He's okay. He's like, what? He's 94 and in prime health. There we go. He's got brain cancer. He fought it off. Yeah. Come on. We need someone (laughs) like that. So, okay. So where did you go to college? I went to college uh, at Washington University in St. Louis. That's a good school. It is a good school. It is a much better school now than it was. I mean, it was a good school then, but it's like a really good school now. But that's good. That that, that benefits you because people don't know that. They don't know how much it's improved. <laughs> that's right. They don't know how it was just sort of like fair. Yeah, at the now time it's the Harvard of the Midwest. Exactly. You, you helped know? make it such. That's that's it. Um, and now, you know, I haven't been back there in a really long time, but I understand that, you know, they completely redid. It's very heavily endowed. It just great for them. Um, but it's, you know, they just redid, you know, the, the dorms that we had were, they were from 1960, I think. And, you know, the funny thing is when we went to college, I'm sounding like very much like when I was a kid, <laughs> you know, when we went to college, my, you know, my parents dropped me off and there we were. Nobody looked at the dorms and said, oh my God, this is just disgusting. Like, I am not going to live in that piece of crap. I, w- I would have lived anywhere. I- I would have lived. I, mean, I, I did live anywhere. Yeah. I lived in hovels you would not believe. Right. Like Where did I, you go to college? Uh, in Boulder. Oh, great. So I mean, but I mean, the first place I, the first apartment I had was like a basement apartment, with like seven foot ceilings, like terrible plumbing. <laughs> I didn't care. I know. I was just happy to have like my own space. Right. I I feel the same way. I thought that those dorms were great. I mean, they actually they had air conditioning, not like um, not uh, central air, but they had like their own units. Right. And I was like, oh, that's. Great, you know, because it gets really hot in St. Louis <laughs> in the summer, you know, and it, it was just we we thought it was fine. I mean, nobody ever drove up and thought I'm not staying in this piece of crap. No, but you know, they they completely redid the entire campus. I mean, they tore down all the dorms. They put in all this fancy stuff. Well, you got to compete, though. I mean, if you're I trying guess. to become a top tier school, these you know people have expectations. I guess so, but you know, and like you know, the I'm sure they've got like Tempur-Pedic beds. <laughs> Craftmatic adjustables. Yeah, I I don't get that. I'm not going to school unless there's a craftmatic adjustable I, bed waiting uh, for me in my dorm room. Exactly. Who does? Who Flat thinks that? Flat screen. But somebody does think that. Yeah. I think. Yeah, well, I guess you know. I mean, there's standards. I don't. I mean, I I wouldn't know. I would have to walk through. But I'm imagining that like the you know the Ivy League schools and stuff like they all have to compete with each other. I guess, but then they take so few students. I mean, I don't. I don't know. So, so, okay. So you get there. Were you writerly in college? I, I thought that I was. <laughs> are your parents art- like artistic people? They, um, you know, my parents are, my, my mother's a math teacher and my dad was a, um, management consultant, but he was kind of, I think like, uh, like he could have been a stand-up comedian. I mean, I really think he was, he could have been really successful in the arts if he had so desired because he was really, Did he have an opportunity? I mean, do you think like he was maybe limited by his access or something? I I mean, I think he was limited by his own kind of self, 
you know, doubts or I don't even know. I mean, he just would come out with the funny. I mean, he was so funny. He's no longer with he, us. He just passed away in June, oh. unfortunately. Um, but he just was so funny all the time. He would just come up with this stuff like out of nowhere. And I, I don't think he ever really, I don't think he, I mean, he, he never shared it with me if he did. He, he didn't really seem that interested in pursuing something like that. You know, he was, he was interested in, sociology and psychology and sort of, you know, organizational behavior and that kind of thing. And, um, and yeah, so that's kind of what he did. So nobody was really, nobody really claimed to be artistic, but, you know, I found out later that his mother, my grandmother was a, was a writer and took writing classes and won some kind of award. My aunt told, tells me this, you know, like after my dad passed away, she's like, thanks for letting me know. I know. I'm like, maybe I could have <laughs> talked to her about that stuff, like you know, before yeah. that, that was too late. Um, so there were, there aren't a lot of artists, you know, in the, in the family. But you're breaking the mold. I guess, yeah. Uh, and, and when you got to Washington and St. Louis, you were like, I'm going to what, be an English major? And yes. <laughs> I'm going to read I'm going to read Sylvia Plath and what, and, or what was it? Right. Well, uh, you know, there was a lot of like 18th century novels. Um, there were, uh, I took like a Masters of Literature, kind of like one of those, what do they call them, where it's like two survey, s- survey courses, exactly. And that was great. Um, I took the Bible as literature. Oh, I was, I was did, did not do well in that at all um you know i took whatever they whatever they said you had to take and what about I, writing I were you like journaling and um i was kind of like my senior year i decided to take uh like a creative writing course and so i remember you know the first story i wrote was like oh god it was probably some horrible like ripoff of um the sound in the fury or something just <laughs> really just bad but the the instructor who was a graduate student she she really liked it so i thought okay you know i'm really i'm on to something here and then you know as time went on i didn't i guess i didn't realize that you really have to kind of put a lot of effort into you know writing your stuff every week and so you know half the time it was like just crap and so by the end of the you know i think i got like a b in the class and i remember i asked the teacher if she would write me a recommendation if i wanted to apply for um you know like an mfa program and she was like no she just flat out said no really yeah and i was like okay what did you say i was like well i you know that's the weird thing i never you know i have these moments where people like reject me or you know whatever people have all of this and i rarely remember like what i say back because i think i probably was just so like horrified and like felt (laughs) so bad about myself yeah i was just kind of like okay you know, I just like walked out. Yeah. See, I mean, cause like I'm of two, I'm of two minds on this. Like what was the, there's like the Flan, the famous Flannery O'Connor quote where like, you know, she's basically like fewer people need to do this, right? you know, <laughs> right. because they're not, they're not qualified right. or whatever. Right. Kind of snobby, but like at the same time you sort of clap for it in some sure. way. But then I'm also like having been a teacher and having been asked for recommendations. Like I never said no to anybody. Well, that's because you're clearly a nice person. But also like, you know, like I'm also like, I don't know. And like, what if they bloom late? Like, and yeah. I'm also like, well, they want to do this. Like, who am I to stand in their way? Like, might as well help them on their way. Well, I think that's very kind. I don't feel like a guardian of some like sacred, like literary trust or, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I get that. Like there are people who are trying to do it, who have no business 
Right. But, but then again, like, why shouldn't those people be do allowed it to anyway? fail? Yeah. yeah. Go, go, go learn the hard way like everybody right. else. Exactly. She could have let me learn the hard way, you yeah. know, spend all kinds of money on an MFA program and flunk out. What's or, her name? Let's, I, I, let's out her publicly. <laughs> I, you know, I totally can't even remember her name anymore. I get it. You she blacked she, her she, out. I did. I mean, I can see her, but, and I, she wrote this novel. Oh, God. Let's hope she's not listening. She had written this novel called Arcady. You know, I've like, had her on the show. <laughs> Are no, you I'm, serious? I'm oh, my kidding. God. <laughs> <laughs> she's my, she's my guest next week. <laughs> Great. Oh, God. Yeah. And I was just like, oh, she's so, I don't know. I, I, you know, I was one of those people who tended to put their teachers on pedestals unless they just seemed completely inept. So, okay. So you, you go through that. You're not obviously not on the MFA train. No, I wasn't on the MFA train. How did you get from uh, Washington and St. Louis? And I guess you went back to Chicago after yes. college. Mm-hmm, I did. And, and then you stumbled into Second City. Exactly. Yes. That's, that is what happened. So I, I, I really got interested in improv and I, I really enjoyed doing it. Um, so I sort of thought at the time, like, oh, you know, well, if, if somebody, you know, if somebody thinks I've got talent, like if somebody thinks I'm good enough, maybe I'll, I'll do it. You know, that's just the bad way to go about it. You, you know, you have to waiting be- for like external validation before you do anything. Exactly. <laughs> that's pretty much the, that's the Debbie Graber story. <laughs> <laughs> waiting for external your, validation. Your next book. <laughs> waiting for external validation. Exactly. I think that's perfect title. Um, yeah. So I was definitely doing a lot of that. And, and at a certain point, um, I'd been there, I'd been working there for like five years and it was great. I mean, it was a really fun job and it was being you know, around funny people, really funny people. And we had our own little like group of administrative misfits, you know, it was kind of, it was great. And then I had a, fr- I have a friend who had moved to New York, um, right out of college and she was working in television production, you know, in like the four, one of the four shows that was being, being produced in New York. And so she said like, oh, I'll, you know, I'll hire you. I, I'm going to, I'm going to be the audience coordinator, you know, on this show and, and I can, I can hire an assistant. So do you want to, do you want to move out here? And I was like, yes, I do. Sure. I would love to do that. Um, so I moved out there, uh, which was great. And, you know, how old were you then? Uh, I think I had, ju- I think I was 29. Okay. I was 29. So I was kind of like not young, you know. Well, but I mean, young enough. Young enough. Young younger. Enough to, young enough to have fun in New York. Definitely. Definitely. And it was a good, you know, it was, it was sort of like the salad days in New York at that point. I mean, not that Giuliani, you know, like kicking out all the crime or whatever other things were swept away with it uh, is such a great thing. But it was a good. It was a good time to be in New York. It was like you know pre nine eleven and and all of that stuff. Um, so it was great, and I I ended up meeting my husband there, and um, he is a writer as well. And he moved out here a couple years into it, a couple years after I'd moved there, and he he got a job out here, and so the like, show like writing in television, yeah, writing in television, exactly. And so um, so I thought, well, you know. I, I had never entertained the idea of living in LA. Never. It just, I did, it never crossed my mind. But, you know, this, this was coming up and I was like, well, either we're going to break up and I'm going to, we weren't married at the time. Like either we're going to break up or, you know, I'm going to stay here and see what happens or I'll move out there. So yeah. So I moved out, I moved out here and, um, you know, it was really hard initially, much harder than it was being in New York, moving from Chicago to New York, moving from New York to LA was like very hard, very challenging. Why? Um, I think I just was, I had such like a, that like faux New York, um, 
mindset, like, oh, New York, it's so, it's so great. You know, there's a million stories in the, in the, you know, in the city and all that stuff. Like, uh, it just seems so, um, there were just so many people and there's, you know how it is in New York. There's like this energy that you can't really replicate. And so moving out here, it just was, it was just very different. It was like, very different. Incredibly different. It is. It is. And, um, you know, some people like my husband, he really took to it. I mean, he, lo- he loved LA from the minute he got here. It was like, oh, so this, and all the old Hollywood stuff. And he's like an old, you know, movie buff and stuff. So he was really into it. And I just, I, I remember I was at the intersection of like Sepulveda and, um, like Ventura Boulevard and, and I was just like, this is possibly the worst place I've ever been. <laughs> like, I, I, this is just horrendous. <laughs> LA is just pockets. It's like some pockets you're like, this is the most beautiful thing I've ever Absolutely, seen. Absolutely, yeah. Then you're at the next pocket. You're like, why am I staring at like a like Zamfu chicken or whatever? <laughs> right. Strip right. mall. And there's like right. a dry cleaners and like somebody's yeah. peeing. And you're just like, what am, where am I? Yeah, you know? exactly. It's just so, it's just so different. But it, and it, you know, it's, it doesn't speak well of me, honestly. It's not, you know, it's not LA. It's me. That I had such a a hard time, like letting, you know, letting go. Um, Did you have like a New York dream? Like when you went to second city, to, <laughs> but I mean, like when you weren't, went to second city and you worked there as an admin and you were around all these funny people and right. you're a creative person and you wanted to be a writer sure. in college. Right. Did you, were you thinking like, I want to go write for SNL or I want to write movies or I want to write books and be like the great, like Nora Ephron. Right. Or- right. Oh, definitely. I mean, I, de- I think I definitely had that in the back of my head. I Wh- mean, which one did you have a specific dream? Um, you know, at the time I think, you know, it was so weird when I had moved there, I, I just got so like heavily into my job, which was like a, a TV, you know, on TV, pro- a TV production. So it was kind of like, there wasn't a ton of time to, that I devoted at least to like writing or, you Well, I mean, know. you've also got to make time for like drinking and exactly. running around New York. Exactly. There was a lot of that going on. Um, I think, you know, if I were to have thought about it, like, oh, you know, in the future, I'm going to like use all these experiences and like write some, you know, book that's going to just change everything. I think that's always been sort of my like, um, <laughs> like an accomplishable dream. Yeah. A book that changes <laughs> a everything. A book that changes everything. <laughs> that's going to be the next shatters one. people. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's just mind blowing. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, especially when I moved out here and I decided to get more serious about my writing and really, you know, took a bunch of classes and, you know, decided to get my MFA. I felt like, okay, you know, now I'm really going to, this is really where I'm going. Um, so, okay. So wait, so you're in New York. Okay. You meet your husband. Yes. You have like, you know, like you've taken on the airs of a New Yorker. Like you definitely you feel you're, you're, you love the place you're integrated. Right. But then, you know, this guy that you're interested in moves to Los Angeles and you have a decision to make. Right. So then you come out here and you're sort of like a fish out of water yes. and you're adjusting like at what point, like I want to know more about the decision you made to start taking your writing more seriously. Like right. what was happening in your life? Yeah. I, I think, um, at the time I had, when I came back to, when I came to LA, I, you know, I had been doing TV production and I felt like that's really all I'm qualified to do. So I did that for a couple years and I, you know, I don't know. What if does that heard. mean? Did TV production? It's, I mean, where I was coming from, you know, I was like a production secretary okay, at, or a production coordinator. And it's just a lot of like, I mean, it's really busy. There's a lot of wrangling of people and, um, you know, kind of like running errands for people. There was a lot of that. 
Uh, what do you mean for people? For producers? For producers. Go and get stuff. me a salad? Yeah. I mean, it, and it was early enough, you know, it was back in the day enough that they didn't have, um, there wasn't like PDFs, <laughs> PDF, Adobe. I don't know where that was, but it wasn't there yet. So, you well, know, I had to like, yeah, it was pre-Adobe, <laughs> which is a long time ago, the pre-Adobe period. So um, I had to, you know, I think on one job, like I had to organize thank god i didn't have to do it myself but i had to like organize the pas about like who's doing the runs after the scripts would come out because like the pas would have to drive they would have to drive at like four o'clock in the morning and deliver the scripts to the actors and to the producers and i was i just remember thinking like this is the worst job ever like <laughs> this is just horrible like yeah i did that just, i was uh, like an intern at a film uh, production company oh god i'm sorry right out of college <laughs> I was like working for Richard Gladstein, who, uh-huh. who uh, was like Pulp Fiction producer. Right. I just remember like, he'd be like, go take my Mercedes to Beverly Hills and oh, get yeah. it serviced. And I'd right. be like, okay. And this is, this is me learning the business, I guess. And like, take my, cl- my clothes to the dry cleaners, get me a Cobb salad at yeah. Swingers. And you know, that's what <laughs> oh, I did God. for like six months. I was like, what am I doing? You're right. Exactly. And, and then I had gotten, I think when I just got so like, I can't do this anymore. I took it. I had a job at the, at game show network. Okay. Which, um, you know, was features game shows. Yes. There okay. were a lot of, you know, there was a lot of game show showing. Um, there were a lot of old game. It just was like, I just was like, what the hell am I doing with my life? You know, I think you, I just got to a place where I, I, I felt like I needed deeper meaning, deeper meaning. You know, I wasn't just going to have these like series of, I wasn't going to have a series of just crappy jobs. Was I, you know, was that Let's it? Let's talk about this. Cause I was telling you before we came on, like I'm in between jobs right now. Yes. And so I'm very, I'm feeling very contemplative, uh, or trying to feel contemplative. <laughs> I want to, I want to, I mean, I'm serious though. I want to put good thought into my next move in hopes that I can land somewhere where there is some sort of meaning right? where there is some real fun and that I feel like I fit and that, you know, you want to make a good call. Right. And I think that sometimes when you get into these situations where you just need a job, right. You just sort of jump to wherever they'll have you. Yes. And I guess that's always going to be some part of it, but that feels fraught to me because then you wind up in places where you're like, okay, I, I, you know, someone threw me a, a life preserver. And now I'm on this little island, but I'm like, what island is this? And who are these people? Like, how does one, is it just serendipity? How does one get into a professional existence where you, you feel good and solid about it and like you're making a difference and you're also making enough money? (laughs) You know, these, I think are the unanswerable questions. I I mean, but it feels like it's, is it getting worse? I don't, I, 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 and, and like, do you know anybody who has question. that kind of job? Yeah. Do you know anyone who feels like really good about their life and career? Like in a way that they've expressed outwardly to people? I just, I mean, not, I, no, not really. Uh, you know, and I think that this kind of like in a way, I, because I've done a lot of thinking about this. Um, Your book is about because the Because my book is kind of about this, you know, and that is always how I have felt about my jobs. Like, you know, it speaks to like low self-esteem or whatever that... Any job I've gotten, I'm like, well, I, I got this job, you know, so it's got to be okay because I got it. You right, know, right. somebody gave me this job. They so like me. They like me. I'm going to take it. And um, it's sort of, I just don't know if organized, um, you know, if companies really can offer that kind of reality for their employees. Like, I just don't feel, at least my, you know, I can only speak from my own experience, but I feel like, you know, once a company gets to be like a decent size or even 
not a decent size. I mean, there's just, there's like competing um, ends to things, you know, and I, I think that the company's, the company, what whatever the company wants is what is more important than anything else. And, you know, like with, with the company that I work for, it's kind of made, I feel like it's made worse because they claim that they do care about their employees, you know, they, and they, and they try sort of in certain ways to like, Hey, we're going to give you guys like a wellness program. And like, uh, we're rolling out this, we're rolling out this new, like, um, university kind of thing. You could take classes in your spare time, uh, you know, for free. And I'm not like trying to disparage that. That's very nice. But I don't think it really makes a difference. Unfortunately for them, I don't think it makes the employees feel better about the company. I feel like it just gives the employees something else to be like, well, if I had, you know, if there were more resources around here and like right. more people to help out, I guess I could do some of that stuff, but that's never going to happen. <laughs> I could be learning French right now. I, I, I could be taking a photography If class. I didn't have to work 14 hours if, a day. If I wasn't like always at my desk, you know? <laughs> Cleaning up a spreadsheet. Yeah, I mean, because the thing, too, is that, like, you know, you've got businesses are in business to make money. Exactly. And profit motive, I feel like, supersedes everything else. Definitely. Uh, in almost every case. But, and I, I hang on to that. Like, the idealist in me hangs on to this. But, like, Yvonne Chouinard, I think that's how you pronounce it, the guy who runs Patagonia. Okay, right. He's, he's like, enlightened CEO. Yes. And I just gave air quotes, but I don't even know <laughs> if I should have. He, he really does seem to be running a company that... Cuts against the grain. Uh, th that's fantastic. I mean, I would love to work for a company gives, like but, that. But I mean, like, because I'm just looking anywhere for hope. Like, <laughs> I, to, can can it can it be done? Can you can you run a company of a decent size, and can you do it in a way that is really humane? And you know, I've listened to interviews with him. I've read a lot about the company, and like in its earlier days, you know, when it wasn't, um, you know, the brand that it is now. Like even back then, they, had, they like you could bring your kids. They had like right. preschool on site. That's amazing. They were super like kind to uh, mothers and families, and they still are. Right. Um, they also like own every piece of clothing that they sell. Like if it rips, you can return it, and they'll sew it up. Yeah. And they ask you to like mail. I mean, like they're the the point that I'm trying to drive. Uh, the point that I'm driving at is that they're pretty radical. Right. Like, and they, they make decisions that don't always necessarily coincide with profit motive. Uh, right. And that's a really hard thing, especially for public companies yes. who are beholden to shareholders. Right, right. To do like, but for private companies, um, I guess, I mean, you know, I guess he probably owns, I don't even know what the ownership situation is, but I'm imagining it's privately held and he's in pretty much control of it. Right. It seems like the only scenario where it would exist, like the company that I was just working for, uh, was small startup, but it was, you know, it had investors. Right. They wanted to see returns on their right. investment. Oh, sure. And so, yeah. you know, like it just gets, it gets very difficult and it takes a certain kind of person. And I would say a person, um, of a particular genius and high character, because you got to be good at business, right? You but have you also to, have to be good at people. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, you have to be able to make sound business decisions, but at the same point, like you can't, you know, you have to be kind to your employees. I mean, we, you know, this, the company that I work for is, it's actually an employee owned company, which is, it sounds like that would be great because you're really beholden to each other. And, and I think in theory that is true, but as the, as an employee owner, you, you as an employee, me as an employee owner, I don't have any say in 
the way the company is run and, uh-huh. you know, what the company, per, you know, what they buy and assets they acquire and, you know, how they're spending their money. It's basically a retirement benefit for me, which is great. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Retirement benefits are great. Um, but, you know, the, th- the thing that just cracks me up is, or, you know, that just, it, it becomes like so hypocritical to me because it's like, um, we're, you know, we're employee owners, but yet, you know, we have absolutely no say so in, in what is happening. So it's just like, it's just kind of like a, uh, what do you call it? Um, I mean, I guess it's not empty. You do have some equity in the company. You do. You get, you know, you providing that the company continues to do well, you have a benefit right. when you retire. That's great. Um, but you know, for everyone to be like, Oh, this is an employee owned company. It's like, yeah, but that doesn't really get you anything in the moment. I think that the, uh, the erosion of trade unions yes. in the United States of America has been a disaster. Oh, I completely agree. Because you have like the only bargaining power that average working people have is in the, in collective uh, organization. Right, right. I, I think that's a hundred percent true. You're seeing it like Los Angeles Times. Yeah. Like I've seen that with newspapers. Right. I think that's so smart and uh, necessary because otherwise. Like you say, even if you're like a company owner or whatever, you don't have any leverage. None. We have none at all. It, it's yeah, I I completely agree. I mean, I think unions are great. I mean, I think they're just great for workers. And uh, I'm going to start the podcast union. I think you should. <laughs> it's just bullshit. It's eight local eight seventy one. Going to rise up against iTunes. <laughs> I mean, you know, the Writers Guild and the Directors Guild and the Producers Guild. I mean, th- that's, that's a great thing. You know, it's funny that you say that because these are some of the most successful unions in the country, right? And there's a reason why everybody wants into them because the healthcare is great. Absolutely. The pay. I mean, it's not what it used to be. I guess people say, but still, it's way. Better, oh my god way better than the average it, and certainly way better than than the studios would be handing out oh where, they're, where they're not a union that's a hundred percent true i yeah. mean you know these studios take everything oh, they would take everything unless there was some way for the artists to um collectively bargain absolutely absolutely yeah it's um it's really tough you know it's um it is really it is really hard to try, you know, whenever I think about like, oh, what kind of, you know, what kind of a job would I get if I didn't have this job? Or, you know, would I, how could I, you know, make money? And it just seems like so, it would just be so kind of like lonely and like, okay, well, I could work like out of my house and maybe like take a class and do people's taxes. I mean, that's okay. I'm (laughs) not, you know, but then it's like, uh, there's certain things about work as much as I kind of like rail against the sort of like soul sucking quality of having to be there and not be, you know, and just follow blindly as blindly as, you know, I can make myself, um, you know, there, there is something really comforting about being at work. You know, you've got you other get your people. little work family. Yeah. I mean, I've worked at this company for a long time. I know all these people. I, I know how to do my job, you know, for the most part. There's I, a certain dignity in it. Yeah. I mean, there is a not, you know, there, there is. Yeah. I can't, you know, I can't uh, qualify that there, there is. What I found is that like, as I'm reflecting on the time that I spent at this company is that the how tr- long were you there? Just like a year. Not even. I mean, the company like basically dissolved, ran, uh, ran out of money. Uh, uh, so everybody, like it was like this, I was calling it like the red wedding. Oh no. <laughs> That's what I call it now. Don't take, uh, don't take your lunch break. Uh, uh, it was yeah, like but... that. It was like, basically we, we all went in one morning and they were just like, you're all gone. We're oh, like, okay. No. It's oh. over. Party's over. So, uh, um, but what I was thinking about is that like the truth is that 
the thing I enjoyed most about being there were just the people. Yeah. And what I wanted, and what I would try to do as often as I could was just shoot the shit with people and get into conversations not dissimilar to this one. Right. I mean, it's hard to get into like an hour long. Right. But I would always just, I like to talk to people. Yeah. And that's what I'll miss. But like the, the actual doing of the job and like trying to get business and mm. that part of it, it could, could be fun. Because like then there again, you're talking to people. It's just about people. Right. Yes. It is. You know, at the end of the day, it is really just about talking to people. And, you know, it's so funny because at, at my job, it seems like there are, you know, there are all these different groups and, you know, certain groups are supposed to have conversations with our, the client about certain things. And like a lot of the times those people don't want to have the conversations with the client because either they they don't know they don't understand what to say or they don't feel comfortable or they just don't want to do it. Right. So it goes in like a circle, you know, it starts like, okay, well you talk to the client and then it's like to the next group. You got, you guys talk to the clients. Like, no, we're not talking to that client. You're talking to the client. <laughs> so I mean, in the meantime, the client is like, what the fuck? Like, is anybody going to call me? You know, is anybody going to talk to me about how to do this? It just, because it's just, it just cracks me up. It's like, okay, could someone just like, if this is your job, like do your job or don't do it and get another job. I think that's, that means some people just, I, maybe I complicate matters too much. Maybe I expect too much from my work. Like maybe it's just like find a job, pays you reasonably well, yeah. nice enough people, go in, do your job the best of your ability, clock in, clock out, go home. Why do I want such grandiose things for my professional life? I want it to mean so much. Well, I think that that is a good impulse, you know, and I think, I think it's a good impulse, but I think it's so disappointing when, I mean, at least for me, I find that I cannot, I, I'd really like to just go in and like clock in and clock out and be like, okay, now I'm on to my other stuff. But I find that the things that happen at work just infiltrate my psyche so much that I can't, you know, I can't just turn it off. And then, you know, it gets to this sort of probably like deeply neurotic place where it's like, I've got to do a good job. You know, I need to do a good job. And it's like, Oh fuck doing a good job. You know, at a certain point it's like, why am I, why am I so neurotic? It is. Yeah. I feel like it is like a very neurotic impulse to just, that it's not about doing a good job. It's about like being a good daughter. You know, <laughs> I'm really a good person. Aren't I daddy, mommy, you know, doesn't somebody love me? It's, it becomes like all of that, which is just not a good can of worms. You know, it's a, it's a can of worms that you don't want to get into. Not at, you know, at least not at work. So, so that's kind of like, I think those, it, that sort of impulse was what I found interesting enough to like write the book about, um, right. you know, because it is, you know, so much of our identities are wrapped up in what we do professionally. It, it is even when you don't want it to be, you know, even when you don't want it to be, it just, it ends up being, you know, you, you, the friends that you have, you know, a lot of them are people, you know, from work, you know, if you've, if you've been there long enough or, um, you know, you just find yourself like there's this shared sense of like, in our case, I think in at my company, there's like a shared sense of just like doom, like, oh, we're never going to be able to do anything. Like we can't change anything. It's, it's, you know, they're just like, they give us stuff to do and we just have to do it. And, you know, people try to like rise up against the, against the powers that be. And, you know, it just. You can, but you there's can. some camaraderie in that. Absolutely. There, there absolutely is. It's, um, it's just a very interesting study of human behavior. You know, it, it, it definitely is. So what would you, if like, if you had your druthers, you would just be writing books 
Or do you think that like having the day job, I mean, clearly this book would not exist if you didn't have the day job. Definitely. It would not. Sometimes, and I've had this thought too, like I think maybe I'm better when I am pressing against something or when time is more limited. Right. And if I had all the time in the world to just write books, which, you know, to be honest, I probably have had in the past to a greater degree than most people. Right. Like I had some years where I was just like floating, you know, and my... Or like my wife was working a lot and I had pockets of time or I was doing the childcare. I was like, I could have been writing and I didn't, I didn't get it. I mean, I, I mean, I tried to get some stuff done. I wrote some TV that did okay. But it's like, I don't know. Like, I feel like maybe like looking back on my college years, it was like yeah. the semesters when I had like 18 hours, Oh right. I got better grades. Yeah. And yeah. the semesters where I took like two classes, it was like a struggle. <laughs> well, I sometimes worry that I wouldn't, I don't have anything to write about. Like if I didn't, if I just had time to like, you know, it's like um, that Burgess Meredith Twilight Zone episode, like have own languages read forever, you know, and oh, have great. all this time. And then, you know, he cracks his glasses and he can't see, and he <laughs> dies not being able to see it, you know, read anything. I, I feel like there's a little bit of that, that I feel like if I, if I didn't have the, um, you know, connection with other people, or I didn't have the sort of, uh, just witness, I didn't witness the, whatever insanity is going on in people's minds and how it just was reflected back in our, in the workplace. Like I, I'm afraid I would just have these really dumb ideas that would just never go anywhere. Like what if I wrote a story about, you know, people who lived on a quiet suburban street, you know, just <laughs> and watched a lot of reality television. Wouldn't that be interesting? Like, uh, you know, I mean, maybe it would be if I was, you know, if I could pull it off, but I, I fear that I wouldn't, you know, that the, the interaction with other people wouldn't is what sort of drives it forward, the creative spark forward. And I, I fear that I wouldn't have that. And so, you know, I would just have a bunch of really bad ideas. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, like, and what about screenwriting? Is that something you've tried? You know, I have not, I have not tried screenwriting, but I am, I've recently decided that I am going to try it. I'm going, I am going to write something. Um, you're not like adapt your book or anything or do something original. Uh, it's going to be original. Okay. It's an original thing. Yeah, um, you've lived in Los Angeles long enough. It's time to have a pilot. Exactly. I need <laughs> to have an original pilot. I think, you know, I can't be a real Angelino no. unless I have one. A, yeah. If you got to cross that threshold, I, I really have to, it's been a long time. So I'm, I am going to do that. That is my next project. Um, you know, because since the book came out, I've really, I have, it has been challenging sort of like ramp up to another you know, people are like, oh, what are you writing? And I'm like, oh, well, uh, you know, I wrote a couple of <laughs> Hey, I wrote stories. a book. What do you want from me? <laughs> you realize what it took to get this thing out exactly. of me? Exactly. It only took like eight years yeah. to get that one done. Just pop out another one. <laughs> yeah. What's hey, your problem? I have this great idea about, yeah, no, I, I, I've written a couple of things, but it clearly it's not, it hasn't been, a, it's been a little bit fallow of a time. So, um. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm mystified by people who have like, just like a, a bottomless well of material. <sighs> I don't. I just. I, I'm like. What do you have to say? I. I don't know. I guess. No. I get very like, like. Oh, what do you have to say? And then sometimes you read it, and then you're like, Oh, that was really good. No, no. I, I guess I, I, guess I was talking to myself. Like, oh. what do I have to say? Oh, what do you have to? I say? I need to like replenish, or I need to like go. I don't know. It doesn't feel like it's. I don't feel like I. Maybe I'm not taking in enough. I guess that's always the answer, yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I feel like don't. This is how it is for me sometimes. Like, I will have periods where I'm like just, oh, this, I have nothing. Like I got nothing. This is all just so pointless. It's all so stupid. I don't have anything to say, blah, blah, blah. And then one day something will come to me and it's like, oh, blah, 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 you know, and it just like something happens that I have no 
control over, um, which I think uh, if I if I probably wrote more, maybe I could like harness that a little bit more effectively <laughs> instead of just waiting for it to show up and be right. like, oh my god, right, right. Um, so wait, how did how do you write? Do you is it just like when the mood strikes you, or do you have like a set schedule? Or? I, I don't have a set schedule. I do try to write. Um, on the weekends, I try to work on things on the weekends. Um, but that being said, you know, some weekends are more productive than others. You know, sometimes I, a lot of times I, you know, I had a couple of stories that I was working on. So my weekends were sort of like taken up with that, but it, I find it very challenging to come up with like original things that stick you know, something that you like start off down the path and then you're like, okay, this has some legs. Um, and that still remains a little bit elusive. Are you looking for, for funny? Me. Is it, is it like, um, a, is it a comedic thing that you're after? Like creatively? God, I, you know, I don't know. I'm very drawn to kind of like very dark comedies kind of, you know, I like wincing laughter. Sort of. I mean, I, I, I'm trying to think of like stuff that I've watched or that I've seen or read that I thought was really like uh, the kind of stuff that I would write. And I have a hard time coming you up with have stuff. A unique, we're all, so you have a unique sensibility. I guess. I mean, not that you have to always read the stuff that you're writing. I mean, I, I, I try not to do that too. You know, I try to like read stuff that is like totally outside of my, what I like to write. Um, you know, I, I just kind of uh, the the one writer who I I sort of go back to quite a bit is George Saunders, mm. who I just think is such a genius in the way he's able to like weave these completely absurd situations into this like really sad <laughs> kind of just you know, totally human sort of you know feeling that you get reading it. I think I just think he's so great. He he really so much of his stuff i'm like oh my god i just love this and that's like and that's like nightstand is that like it's almost like i feel like with certain writers you keep them on your desk as like a desk reference right you know yes. and so you go back and you sort of like dip into it and you're like oh yeah this is why i'm doing this right or like oh this is like where i'm tr- where i'm trying to go you know not like i'm trying to like copy him but you know I, maybe that would work i don't know <laughs> give it a shot <laughs> he wouldn't mind I, um you know i but I do think he's just able to like get the get the f- get the funny and the absurd and the just sad and the dark and sort of just completely sort of human experience into these stories. And I don't know if you read that his novel, the I didn't. Link- Lincoln and I Bardo. want to. How was it? It's good. It's good. It's really interesting. I mean, it's very original. It's um, I thought it was great. You know, I, but I'm, you know, a fan, so he could probably write really bad stuff and I'd still. Yeah. I talked to him on the show. He was, uh, and like when he won the, it was funny when he won the, uh, Booker prize. Yeah. The Booker prize. I was on Twitter and like, there was all this chatter about him and, you know, people were sort of saying their Hosannas about him and it was funny to me because like everyone says how nice he is. He and, seems like a very nice man. But no, that's what I said after I and I talked to, I talked to him I talked to him over Skype. So I didn't I wasn't actually in a room with him, but right. I remember talking to him and I was it was my 100th episode. Wow. I was nervous. Oh god. I was like I'm going to have George Saunders on and that's you know. That's huge. Could not have been nicer. Like way nicer. I mean, pretty much everybody's been nice, but there have been like some authors of a uh, not nearly the same stature right who were a lot less nice less, less nice <laughs> well i wrote him a, an email you know because you can get anybody's email address and he teaches at syracuse so i just looked up you know i was like 
syracuse.edu, yeah, you sure. know. <laughs> Um, I'd sent him an email because I wanted to see if he would blurb my book. And I, I was pretty sure he wouldn't, but I was like, I'm going to write him anyway. So I wrote him an, you know, an email and I was like, oh, I think you're wonderful. I love your stuff, blah, blah, blah. And it was, I sent the email on like Memorial Day or like the eve of Memorial Day. And at, like six hours later, he sends me an email Hi, Debbie. Thank you so much for the kind. This like paragraph. And I was like, oh, my God. He's so nice. He's so nice. Like on Memorial. Like, why are you not having a barbecue with your family? Like, I cannot believe you're just checking your work email and like you sent me an email. So nice. Yeah. Yeah. He's but but he didn't blurb it. No, he, he couldn't. Didn't. But he was very nice about he not blurbing. He was so nice about it. I mean, I was almost like, I, you know, it's almost better that this you man didn't rejects it. people so kindly. It's remarkable. It's you it's know, like it, Jesus it's Christ. A, it's a talent. Some kind of, some kind of talent. Yeah, he's very nice. So I really admire his kind of his way into things. And well, that, it's hard to write uh, funny. Like like uh, pathos and comedy, yes, and because it's a balancing act, right? And I've I've uh, found this in my own work is that like I always compare it to walking a tightrope because if you tip too far in one direction, right, then you it feels weird to the reader because if you're dealing with a sad situation but you're making all these jokes, then right. the reader's like, okay, this just feels weird and silly, right, right. But then if you also the the problem on the other side is that if you get too dark. Then people are like, oh, this is, this is, I can't do this. It's right. just too it, sad. It's it, so hard. I mean, it's really, um, it's really challenging. And, and, you know, a lot of the stuff that I might find funny isn't really, you know, and I know humor, I know it's all, everybody has their own scale of what they think is funny and stuff. But, you know, the stuff that entertains me is not necessarily what anybody else would, would find funny. Um, and, you know, when, and when you start talking about humor, I think, that is like the kiss of death, honestly, like, because nobody wants to read like a humorous novel. That just sounds like, you know, nails on a chalkboard. Like, who, <laughs> oh, God, no, I'm not reading that. <laughs> like, uh, you know, it just the idea of like a humor, humor in an it just sounds like some kind of, you know, like Rush Limbaugh's big fat idiot or I just and know. how many books really are funny. I don't know. I was, I'm trying to How think. many books have you ever read and like actually laughed out loud? You know, they're very few. I, I mean, I'm trying to think of, of, I mean, some of those George Saunders stories, definitely. I've laughed out loud. Some of the, some of the books that I find like funny, witty, they almost always are dealing with super heavy stuff. Right. Exactly. Like I found, uh, what's the book? Uh, everybody loved it. It was like this short, Department of Speculation. Oh, which I haven't read. Okay. But so I should read that. That that to me was a funny book. And it's like, the, it's a really sad book. <laughs> right. I mean, or at least it deals with some sad stuff. But there were moments where I was like, okay, this is funny. Like just dryly painful, you know, but, but like funny. Like uh, that's the kind of funny that I look for in literature. But right. I don't know if I laughed out loud. It might have been like a breathy chuckle, you know, <laughs> or like a smile. A titter. Yeah, a titter. Like, that's it. But like to actually laugh out loud, I, it very rarely happens. You know, I read, I remember reading, and this was a long time ago, and I'm sure this is like a John Hughes movie that if I, like, I thought it was so funny then, and now I'd probably be horrified by like three-fourths of it. But I remember reading A Confederacy of Dunces. Yeah. And I, there were parts of that that I was just totally laughing out you know loud. that's a, that's a good that's a good point that's a great example of a, a successful 
comic novel. There is there is just some funny stuff in there. I mean, there's some horribly racist stuff in there too. Um, but the, just um, wait. Do you think John Kennedy Tool was racist? I mean, or, or is it like he portraying a uh, New Orleans? That's right. Really, yeah. It's hard to say. I mean, he was so young. Also, I mean, wasn't he like thirty years old when he was writing that? Yeah. I, mean, I I don't I don't know. I mean, it was new. In New Orleans, and that's got its own, you know, set of things going on. But I just, that Ignatius Riley, I just remember there's some part where he goes to the movies and he's like watching some, whatever the movie was, and he starts screaming like at the screen, like, who is responsible for this abortion on screen? (laughs) (laughs) That's good. See, I just laughed. Oh my God. Exactly. It was just hilarious. The other other writer that comes to mind, I guess, and maybe I'm not well read enough. I haven't like read enough uh, comedic novels to really get a full uh, sense of what's possible. But I I have always found Hunter Thompson at his best. Right. To be one of the truly funny, I, yeah. And for me, for like when I look at that that stuff, and and I guess like I've always said, I think his his letters are the the best thing that he ever wrote. Right? Yeah, I agree. I agree. And so it's like late sixties, sure. early seventies, when before he's like fried his brain. Yes. And he's like in his prime yes, as yes. a writer, uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, and he's writing letters to friends or like. You know, General Electric or whoever, like he, writing, <laughs> he, he would write these hilarious oh letters, my God. complaining. Stuff, that to, is my favorite kind of thing. Yeah. Oh my God, but I love that. The point that I'm driving at is that, like, you have George Saunders, who's not um, nearly the same sensibility. No, not at all. But who can be successful at weaving, like, you know, deep sadness and like, uh, like a sci-fi almost absurdity, right. With like, you know, deep human truth or whatever. Absolutely. Like Hunter Thompson to me is an example of a guy who could write angry. Oh yeah. And that's hard to do. Oh yeah. It's the same kind of balancing act where like, you know, it's one thing to be like really pissed off at the injustice of the world. Right. Right. Or to just be filled with like man rage, which he right. had. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's no saying. No. <laughs> but he could, he could, um, you know, he could, well, he could, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Meld that rage with like, um, language and get some sort of like, uh, I don't know. It, there's it, like a, there's like a, oh my God, I've totally felt that way. Kind of like, even if it was so out, out there, I think everybody has felt that kind of like rage against the machine. And, but wish you had like said it that way. Right. Right. <laughs> like that's the right. way, that's, that's the way, the way to dress said. somebody down or to like, you know, to take down a politician. Like, I don't know, that kind of stuff appeals to me. Have and you ever read letters, letters to Wendy's? I think it's, called. I have read parts of it. Yeah. But it's oh, it's that sort of thing that I, I have to say that sort of like epistolary thing. I, I love that. And I've, I know I shouldn't write any more epistolary type stories or anything, but Why I not? just love it so much because I, I have a story. I wrote a story in, in the collection that was like a series of emails and it's just, and then I wrote in the same collection, you know, there was like another email sent from this person who's like planning a bridal shower for her sister. And so I, I think it's like, I've been to the well a little bit too many times with that. Although, you know, I say that I feel that way. Like, well, that's oh, also I how most people that. read these days. It's like, we all, true. what do we read the most? We read Twitter. We yep. read text messages. Right. We read emails. Absolutely. Yep. That's so true. I mean, in fact, I saw a funny, there's a funny tweet like circulating, uh, just this week where it's like, what if Twitter, like, it would be so great. And I'm paraphrasing if like Twitter's 
secret strategy is to keep increasing the character limit until we can all actually read books again. <laughs> That's a great idea. <laughs> eventually, there's going to be like a 50,000 word, 80,000 right. word character limit. <laughs> this tweet seems really long. It's taking me a long time to get through. It's got chapters, but it's wonderful. It's a riveting tweet. <laughs> I can't stop reading this tweet. Oh, my God. It's a page turner. I'm like the last person who's i am not on i'm not on social media at all at all not at all good for you i know people say that and then i'm like i'm just really dating myself like yeah. the fact that i refuse to be on it like i i i'm I, how out of it am i getting i'm turning into that person that's like get off my lawn kids. yeah but i mean i think like your your sanity benefits from not being on it um maybe i mean from what i understand in a variety of ways though like my own personal take on the current uh, political situation is that, and I, I sound, you start to sound like a nut, but you have to be willing, I think, to sound like a nut, <laughs> is uh, I think we're in an information war. Oh, I mean, I, that's a great way of putting it. And it's happening on social. Right. So that's the battlefield if, if you're going to use like military parlance. Yep, and so yep. like I feel there's value in being on there and sort of like trying to disseminate truth uh, or it's... at least, I don't know, to, to, to beat it back. Because I think if you see the field... At least this is the way I'm justifying my own Twitter addiction, <laughs> is that if we all just go away, then what's, I don't know, then you're handing the megaphones to the, the dark forces. Isn't it just, it's just so interesting how this, how things have just evolved into this war of information about, you know, who's louder, who's, you know, it just becomes less about making any sense. People I mean, can have their own realities. People can have their own I mean, realities. You talked about it earlier with regard to education and people needing to... Uh, have the ability to think critically and be media literate. And I think media literacy, I mean, I think that's it. That's like, if you're going to get any kind of uh, solution, if you're going to get any, if you're going to get a bandaid on this thing, it's going to have to involve a serious push for education. I, yeah, I think that's true. Because it, like, I was thinking like, what, what would, if you just listened to Rush Limbaugh and watch Fox news, right? your uh. reality is pretty crazy. It, it's or, or or even worse, like Infowars. Like uh, that dude. What's the dude's name? Alex Jones. Oh God. There are, but that there are uh, people who. But, but that's the thing. Like there are people. Like that's their that's their channel, and that's the that's where that, they live. That disturbs me. I mean, I I don't know how you can. Maybe I'm just being like naive, but I don't know how you can look at yourself. I mean, does Alex Jones really believe the stuff that he is saying? No. I, I, that just if he doesn't, then. Like, what is that? That's just horrible. I think that, uh, like, I want to say Keith Oberman. I was thinking about Sean Hannity because uh. he was in, you know, he got caught this week. Uh, oh, right. What did fa- he do? The text messages. So this is on Twitter. Julian Assange thought he was sending a message to Sean Hannity. Oh. But it turned out to be a, a Sean Hannity impersonator on Twitter. <gasps> oh. But it proves that they're talking to one another uh. and coordinating. Like, Julian Assange was saying, like, oh, I, you know, we need to talk. I have some dirt on Mark Warner. Oh. Who's on the Senate right. Intelligence Committee yes, and who's right. investigating and who is a thorn in the side that, of Trump? Ooh, I'm see, I'm missing out on yeah. all of this. So stuff. there's all this like there. There really is like uh, I tried to explain this to a buddy of mine the other day because I'm deep into the Twitter. I use it mostly as a news source, uh-huh. right? And like, I think a lot of people do. That's my internet. Yeah, like I go there to try to like parse. Yeah, and you get things in real time. It's not always accurate. Uh-huh. There sure. are there are times when like there's a, an emotional reaction to something that you wind up biting onto like a fish grabbing the hook yeah, and, yeah. It, and it ends up being like, Oh, you oh know, that what, didn't I overreacted. Right. Or that wasn't exactly the whole story right. or whatever the case may be. But you know, a lot of times Twitter is way ahead of the news cycle. Right. And you're getting it in real time. And if you listen to enough different voices, I find it sort of, it's sort of riveting. Cause you get this like prismatic, 
um, you know, view of things right. and you're trying to like balance, like, well, people say that this lady is crazy, but yet she's been right about a lot of things. And then this guy used to work in the oh, justice boy. department and has an informed insider perspective, but right. maybe that's, you know, skew, skewing his vision. And so you wind up like, I wind up as a, from a media literacy, um, point of view, trying to stitch together, which I think is great. I mean, if that's the way we could all ingest our social media, where we were parsing, you know, out what doesn't seem right and, you know, sort of having to put it together, stitch it together, like what's real or what's really happening. I mean, I think that that's a, that's a great sort of like, you know, brain, uh, tr- you know, training kind of thing, or that's, that's, that's critical thinking. But I think so many people just don't do that. You know, they just take what they're given and sort of like, yeah, that's what's happening. And it's like, uh, well, it's like, you know, what was it? It's like silence is complicity. Like these are, there's certain quotes like yeah. that I've been, and then like, what did, uh, there's like an Emerson quote that I was, what was it? God damn it. I can't remember. But then there was another one where it was like, if you're not political, then you better be exemplary in your personal life. And yeah. and that like I that one like that was one where I paused and was like yeah because I have I do have friends who are like I don't give a fuck I'm not political right and in this right. day and age I'm like okay well then you better be the best, best person, person. <laughs> like, it's hard not yeah. to be political in this day and age but, but I to mean, engage like especially yeah. for people who are in a privileged station absolutely relative yeah. to the rest of the world be it by virtue of your gender or your race or your financial sure. status or all of the yes, above yes yes like these kinds of people and i count myself like i'm one of the I, lucky I, ones me, I, me too absolutely and i would i would imagine that if trump were allowed to run roughshod that people like me would be among those who would be least affected though i could be wrong but i mean it i i sort of fall into a category where a lot of it would probably miss me right right i feel like i have a special obligation to engage right. I, I think that's true i mean i think and it's it's like hard to know too, like how, what's like, what can one do? You know, I mean, you, where do you go? I mean, I, it's just very, it's just a very interesting time. You know, it's a very interesting time to try to figure out how to make a difference, you know, and how just go on Twitter and retweet the right stuff. You know, I feel (laughs) a lot better about getting on Twitter because I, if I had known it was that easy, I'm just, all you got to do is go on Twitter. Just go on Twitter. Save America. Done and done. <laughs> I'm on. Well, okay. So you're writing screenplay. Yes. I'm. Well, how I'm, far along? Are you in the beginning stages? Yes. I. I have. I. I'm going to start outlining. That's how you know. I, this is baby steps. Is your husband going to help you? Um. Or do you guys like? Are you like? Don't help me. Do you stay away. I. You know. I want him. I do want him to help me. But then I also don't want him to help me. Like I think what has to happen is I have to do a pass at it. Yeah. And then he could look at it and be, you know, kind of like brutally honest about it. Right. But I think I need to do it first as bad as it might be. I think I have to, I have to do it. Um, yeah. So I'm going to, I'm going to start outlining this weekend. Wow. <laughs> this weekend. Yeah. Now you're on the hook. You've, now you've officially I'm going to have to do it. <laughs> no, I, I really, I, I want to do it. It's, I've never, it's a, cha- it's a challenge. I've never um, tried to write a screenplay and I think, you know, it's worth uh, giving it a shot. So. Well, I wish you well on it. Well, thank you. And congratulations on the book. <laughs> I appreciate you coming over here. Oh, thank you. This and, has been great. Uh, I'll be interested to see. Like, what, I guess it'll be like what your your television pilot. It's going to sell. 
Steve Carell will be attached. That's it. You know, this is I, I <laughs> Steve Carell, <laughs> Stephen Colbert, Tina Fey. That's right. The entire Second City troop will all be attached they, to your pilot. I, I haven't talked to anybody about it, but I really think they're going to go for it. <laughs> they're just waiting, really. They're, they've by their just phones. been waiting. Yeah, I mean, I think they, I think they're all going to be really excited. Well, thanks for coming over. <laughs> Thank you. Hey, folks. There you go. That's Debbie Graber. Her book is called Kevin Kramer Starts on Monday. It's available now from Unnamed Press. Kevin Kramer Starts on Monday. Go get your copy. If you want to find Debbie online, just go to DebbieGraber.com. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for the uh, intro music. You know what I mean. The theme song music, the transitional music. Go to KillRockstars.com for more information. The uh, music at the very top of the show was the uh, Preservation Hall Jazz Band. Near and dear to my heart. If you would like to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. If you want to support the program, patreon.com slash otherpplpod. The Other People app is free. Go get it wherever you get your apps. It's one of the best ways to listen, if not the best. Critics are divided. I I tend to think that it's uh, the best way to listen. New episodes automatically upload. You can download episodes to listen to while you're offline. It's very user-friendly. If you want to write to me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Did I already say that? Thanks to everyone, uh, once again, who took the time to write to me. I appreciate those notes. It would be funny if I did some sort of, uh, if, if Brad Listy's Yato, <laughs> if that ever came to, uh, to, to pass, it'd be funny to have like a on-site monk, on-site like psychotherapist. On site, I don't know what. Someone who could teach you like useful like skills, like, like accounting, French. Have like a Michelin, a Michelin rated chef on the premises, or maybe everyone would just fast. That would be part of the retreat. It would be like the writer's retreat where you couldn't eat anything. You just had to starve and write. That's a good idea. I think I'm going to run with that. <laughs>